we're going to look at Psalm 67. Psalm 67. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hand up. We'll get one to you. Uh, But we want to make sure that you are on the same page with us. Psalms are in the middle of the Bible. Chapters are in order. Flip to chapter 67. It's seven verses long. And we'll just spend a few minutes here before we take communion together. Okay, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. When you look at this, it's obvious immediately that this is a prayer request. But it's not the prayer request that we think it is at first glance. When you look at the first verse, here's the request. God, would you please be gracious to us? Would you please bless us? Would you make your face shine upon us? That's not really a phrase we use uh, today in our culture, in our language. But we use similar phrases. If you wanted to know how excited somebody was when they walked into their surprise birthday party and you say something like, oh, her face was beaming, what does that mean? Lights were coming out of her eyes. Her face was shining bright because she was happy, because she was delighting in that birthday party that she was surprised about, right? What does it mean that God's face shines when he looks upon his people? It means when he looks upon them, God is smiling. When he looks upon them, he's delighting in them. And when he delights in his people, he blesses his people, and he provides for his people. He shows grace to his people, meaning they don't deserve what God is giving them, but he gives it to them because he's delighting in them. He gives it to them because that's who he is. So the first verse offers a prayer request. God, be gracious to us. Bless us. It's asking God for favor. But when we get to the second verse, it takes a turn and says, The reason why I'm asking for favor, there's an ulterior motive. There's something else here that's at work. He says in verse 2, that or so that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. God bless me. Why? Verse 2, so that, so that the result of you blessing me would be that Nations come to know you so that I don't keep this knowledge of this gracious God to myself, but other people get to know you. And if you bless me, they'll get blessed. So the real prayer request in this passage is not God bless me. The real request in this passage is God bless them through us. That's a big difference. It's easy to come to God and ask him for things. It's easy to come to God and just ask that he would bless us and give us things, but it's 
I don't know how often we connect our prayers to how the result of that will be other people coming to Christ. If God blesses me, and I ask him for a blessing, and he blesses me, and I stop to think, why am I asking him for that? I wonder how often I would fail this test. How often I'd go, because it feels nice to be blessed. Duh. I don't want to be sick. I want to be healthy. I don't want, you know, disobedient kids. I want obedient kids. I, I don't want to be in debt. I want to be successful. Those are all good things. But to what end? This psalm connects it to other people. Say, God, I don't want this to just come rain down and collect in my house or my life. But I want it to serve as a channel to bring that blessing to other people. So he makes that really obvious. He says, I want your way to be known on the earth. What does that mean? What God is like. How he operates. Your saving power among all the nations. I want other nations to know you have saving power. You can save those nations. You think of Vietnam and the the different needs that we've talked about. What can they do to get out of that? They need to get off the communism wagon. Is Is that the real issue? They need Christ. And so the psalm is praying, we know what the nations need. They don't know it. We know what the nations need. We found it. And we ask you to bless us so that we can in turn bless them with a knowledge of the only one that can rescue them out of their dark situation. So it begins and ends with a request for blessing. It's in verse 1. God, please bless us. It's repeated in 6 and 7. God will bless us, or some of your translations might say, may God bless us. can go either way. So it's twice in the psalm asking God to bless them. But seven times asking God to bless others. You see it in verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth. That your saving power may be known among the nations. You see it again in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you. That's my ultimate request. I want other people to praise you, God. Then he repeats it again. Let all the peoples praise you. Then verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. I want them to rejoice in how you administer your judgment, how you govern the earth, the world. You do it with equity. You do it fairly. You do it justly. And how you guide the nations upon the earth. I want them to see that. Then verse 3 is word for word repeated in verse 5. The scribe didn't mess up. It's emphasis. Let the peoples praise you. What's the main request of this psalm? What is his burning passion? What does he want God to move and do? Ultimately, what he wants him to do is get other peoples to praise God. Get other people to learn how to worship the God that they serve. Then at the end, verse 6 and 7, he repeats verse 1's prayer request for God's blessing. But it doesn't end there. Verse 7, God shall bless us, and then the real request again. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. You read through the Old Testament, and that's one way that uh, the Old Testament describes our worship of God. That's a fearful worship. It's a worship where we recognize that he has dominion, that he has authority, that uh, what he says is wise, what he says is right, and he will govern accordingly. But that if you are with him, you experience his grace. And so the grace of verse 1 is paired with the fear of verse 7. They're one and the same. We don't either fear God or believe in a God of grace. Either believe a God that you're supposed to fear or believe a God that has grace. It's both. 
You fear the fact that he's going to lay down the law. But you understand that if you're with him, you're in a relationship with him, you're covered by his plan for redemption, then you experience his grace. So that is worship. That is knowledge of God. And he wants the nations to come to that knowledge. This psalm is like a little sandwich. You got the bread in verse 1, and then another slice of bread in verse 6 and 7. And you got all the meat in between. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. It's bracketed by the request for blessing. But all this stuff in between, all those verses in between, packed with the request for other people to get blessed. Bless me only so that others could get blessed. If you read between the lines, it's like, God, and if it's not going to bless other people, then forget it. Don't bless me then. It's not worth blessing me if it's not going to bless someone else. God is not interested in accumulating hoarders of his grace. He's interested in getting together a people that understand that they are to take the grace that they receive and take it to someone else so that other people can praise him too. This isn't new. You remember back in Genesis 12 when God first told Abram, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I'm going to bless you. And he gives him the reason why he's going to make his name great, the reason why he's going to make a great nation out of Abram. The reason why is so that other nations will be blessed through you. In other words, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for other nations. And yes, you guys are going to be a big pain in the neck, but I'm going to work with you. The plan is that through you, I'll get the other nations. You read through the Old Testament, you think, oh, God only loves Israel and he hates all these other nations because all the destruction and stuff. God handles rebellion. But from the very beginning, his intent to call a people to himself was not to call a favorite people to himself and then hate everyone else. The reason why he called that nation was to be a megaphone to the other nations of God's grace, to be a billboard of God's saving power. This psalm, I love the way it ends. Uh, Let all the ends of the earth fear him. You remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus picks up that plan from Genesis 12 and says, you you guys are my disciples and you're going to make other disciples and here's your mission. I want you to go and be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How does this psalm end? Let the ends of the earth praise him. It's evangelism. We, we typically think we wait for Jesus to teach us that evangelism is the mission of God's people. Well, Jesus wasn't inventing that. It was, you know what, guys, I'm going to do something new. You're going to talk to other people about God. No, he's like, this is the ball that keeps getting dropped throughout the Bible. And now that I've died on the cross and, and shown you, shown you with the greatest uh, level of revelation possible, what God is like, you know, pick up that ball and get out there and take the blessing that God has blessed you with and reach other people. So we need to view God's blessing as an avenue for reaching, for his reaching other people through us. How does this work? Now, this is where it gets kind of tricky, because if you look at verse 6, they're asking, they give a specific example, the earth yielding its increase, right? So one way that God would bless them is through the harvest, and they would get crops, okay? So this is a nation. A nation can't survive. A nation can't thrive if they don't have food. And they can't have food if there's no crops. They can't feed the animals. They can't feed themselves, right? So crops are essential. 
So one tangible way that God would bless them is for crops. Now, here's where it's a little bit discontinuous for us because it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense for us to get together in a prayer meeting and be like, God, please bless our crops. Like, you mean like the farms? Should we be praying for the farmers of the country? Israel was a nation, so they had to pray for crops. We're not a nation. We're a people. We're a people. And so we think, what are the blessings that we need to experience such that other nations would take notice go, man, I want that. Or other people groups to take notice and go, I need that in my life. Right? In the Old Testament, to the ancient mind, to the ancient mind, if you serve the God, well, then that God would take care of you. He wouldn't leave you hanging. And if that God takes care of you, of course, he's going to hook up your crops and make things successful for you in that way. And so to the ancient mind, to witness to those other nations, Yahweh had to show up and produce crops for Israel. How does that work today? How do we invoke a sort of jealousy among people? It's not going to be with your garden. We don't start growing corn in the backyard. It's not a one-to-one correlation. But what are the ways in which we can invoke a sort of appropriate envy, maybe, in other people when they see what we have? That's not very hard to figure out. Because we have what the world doesn't have. Life is only in him. They have death. We have meaning. We have purpose. They've got nothing. We're looking forward to eternity. They dread the thought of eternity. When we read through the Bible, we're like, man, Israel really dropped the ball on this. You know, God was supposed to be their king, and they asked for a king just like the other nations have a king. We want to be like the other nations. You're not supposed to be like the other nations. You're supposed to make the other nations jealous of what you're like. And so they dropped the ball and they failed left and right. Their kings failed. Their prophets couldn't get it right. The judges would do some work and then it would enter back into a cycle of rebellion, two different exiles. It's a big mess. It doesn't take long for us to realize that we dropped the ball too. The world is supposed to look at our marriages and go, man, how do they keep it together? They can't because our divorce rate is the same. They're supposed to look at the way we raise our children and go, man, how is it that those children really get it and my children don't? We can't do that if our children aren't any different. The way we parent isn't any different. The you know, secular family, all they have is work. They get up in the morning, they go to work, they pour themselves into their work, and they come home, and they're too tired for the kids because they got to work, and they miss the big picture. We're not supposed to miss the big picture. Why do I work? Not for me. I work for a blessing to take to someone else. That's a radically different worldview. But we don't live like that. We don't live Psalm 67. We live Psalm 67, verse 1. God, can you help me out? Can you help me out? Can you help me out, God? Can you help me out? Why, though? Why? Why do you want me to intervene? Why do you want me to step in? If you align your heart with God's heart, you'll look around you and see that people are lost, and they need help, and they're not going to get help if your life isn't any different. If your life doesn't billboard the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's just one of many religions. It's not supposed to look like one of many religions. It's supposed to stand out. The psalmist knows that, and that's why he asks what he's asking, that God would bless so that others would be blessed. We're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be examples of love and unity and peace. 
So, family, this is, this is supposed to be our prayer. This is supposed to be our passionate, fervent, urgent prayer. God, would you work in us? Would you delight in us? Make us what we're supposed to be. Do in us what needs to get done. Bless us. It's not about cars and mortgages. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. So that my neighbor, my coworker, this church in Vietnam, supposed to spill out all over the world. You know, I, as my sabbatical was winding down, I thought to myself, yeah, I, I kind of feel like I'm Moses going into the mountain. I'm supposed to come down with tablets or something. Like, all right, CFC, here's what God told me, right? And in a sense, I do sort of feel that way, but it's not anything new. I didn't get a new word from the Lord. It's not something new that wasn't on my radar before. Where I go, okay, this is the direction that CFC is supposed to go. I get it. John, let's meet and let's change the whole thing. It's the same burden that I left with, albeit stronger, clearer, more focused. But CFC needs to be a church where evangelism is at the core. This fervent, urgent, sleepless desire to see other people come to Christ. That needs to be our heartbeat. Because that's why God called the people to himself and doesn't just rapture us immediately as soon as we're baptized. Why do we linger here? Because other people need the bread that we found. That's why. And so God wants us to get out there. Now, you may think, boy, he's really laying it down. Listen, I'm in the same boat, and it never dawned on me with the same clarity that it did when I was in Vietnam. One of the afternoons that we were done preaching, we walked out of the hotel and sat in that same park and just kind of looked out to make sure the shoe cleaning guy wasn't around. And we sat in this park and people were doing crazy things or playing games we'd never seen before. Uh, they're, they're doing like a weird Zumba thing and everyone's dancing in the park with the radio playing. And um, I was going to show you guys a video of that, but we'll be here all day. But it's hilarious. We're just kind of observing the sights and the sounds. And uh, as we're sitting there, someone comes up to me and Mark. He says, are you guys from America? Yes. Oh, great. Can I practice my English with you? Sure. Okay. Start practicing English. Another person approaches from the other side of the bench. Are you from America? Yes. Can I practice my English with you? Okay. So Mark continues the conversation with the first guy, and then I start this conversation with the second guy. And the whole time, I'm a little bit on edge. Now, I already struggle with evangelism. I've told you guys this. I already struggle with that. I don't know what it is. The the different fears, the different excuses, really, that we come up with. Look, I'm guilty of pretty much all of them. I'm sitting in Vietnam, and I'm going, I don't know, like, technically, I'm not supposed to, like, be here teaching pastors to own a faith that the country's kind of closed to. How much do I say? I'm not sure. So when Mark and I were talking with the first guy, he's like, so what are you guys here for? We're like, ah, we're, you know, I forget what we said. We just say, gave something big. Like, ah, we're just here, you know, we're visiting, you know. Yeah, we're at a conference, whatever. Then the second guy's asking me, why are you guys here? Well, I'm at a conference, and something hit me, and I'm like, what are they going to do, throw you in jail? Are you some kind of wimp? You'll never be able to read Acts again, you chump, you know. 
And I'm like, I'm a pastor, and I'm here to teach other pastors to pastor churches. Right? Oh, that's great. Oh, wow. Tell me more about that. And I'm like, wow, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I hesitated. So I start sharing the gospel with the guy. I, I forget how it got there, but I just asked him about meaning and life. You know, He's like, yeah, it's, it's a nice religion. There's many religions. I'm like, yeah, but all those other religions can't answer the right questions. Like what? I said, why are you here? Oh, I'm here because I'm a student. No, but why are you here? Oh, I'm here because, you know, I'm hanging out in the park. No, man, why are you here? Then he got it. Why do we exist? What is our ultimate meaning? What is our ultimate purpose? And I showed him, show me how another religions answer that. And I showed him how the gospel answers that. Mid-conversation, another two guys walk in. Can we jump in? Yes, you can jump in. So I start talking about them, about the Bible. One of them opens his backpack, pulls out a New Testament that some other American tourist gave him some other time ago. And he's like, I love this. I'm practicing my English by reading the New Testament. I'm like, great. What is one of your favorite passages? Keeps going. First guy has to go. Another lady comes. She's Catholic. She's a young, a young girl. Can I join in the conversation? Sure. I, the first thing I thought is we need to get together a missions trip and just stand in the park in Vietnam. And they just, they just come to you. Can I practice English? Yes. Can I share with you the gospel? It's a captive audience. And so the government officials, you know, officially may be very close to the gospel, but they're very open to the gospel. There is a picture here of the two of the guys that I spoke with. The guy on the left is a guy that had the New Testament out in his bag. And uh, the guy on the right didn't speak very much English, but I think he understood more than he was probably letting on. And, uh, you know, as I was ministering to them, I thought, why don't I do this at home? Why don't I do this at home? Now, granted, I can't just stand in Bussy Woods and, like, when's someone going to approach me? This was like God serving the gospel uh, opportunity on a silver platter. Like, here, you doofus, talk to someone about Jesus, you know? We're just scared. But when you really, really care about something, it doesn't matter if you're scared. You just do it. Your first day of school was scary, maybe. Except for you ultra extroverts. I'm sure John was never scared of the first day of school. But for us regular folks, but you do it though, right? Because what are you going to do? Drop out? Because you're scared of who you're going to sit next to? The consequence is worse if you fall in, cave into the fear than if you didn't. And the same is true with evangelism. What is the consequence if all of us are just sort of spiritual introverts and don't share the gospel with anybody? We'll be here 10 years from now, guys, still asking God to bless this church and send people. And he's going to be like, I'm sending you. I'm sending you out of these doors. Don't ask me to send people into these doors if you're not willing to go out of these doors and talk to people. That's how I designed it. I didn't design it. If you build a building and put a cross on the top of it, call it a steeple, put an ad in the paper, then people will flock to the gospel. He never said that. He said, you're going to go. You're going to go. And be witnesses here, there, ends of the earth. That's what we need to do. The message that we proclaim is the gospel. Fathers, we close in a song of worship and a prayer. We ask that uh, the same way that our bodies are ingesting the bread and the drink, we ask that our spirits would ingest your grace the work of your Holy Spirit in us to make us the people that we need to be in order that other people would join the ranks and learn about you 
to worship you. We thank you that you made a way through Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, and ascension to your right hand. And we ask that others would get to know that truth through us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.